Well, while that saxophone blares away downstairs, let's tune in up here to the words of life and pray that it is these words of our good shepherd that puts joy into our hearts. I wonder if you'd turn back with me to John's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 37 to 52 today. That's page 893 in the Black Church Bibles. John chapter 7 from verse 37. On the last day of the feast, that is the Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus has been in Jerusalem celebrating, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who were to believe in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came back to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet comes from Galilee. Well, as you keep those words open, I wonder if you would think for a moment about what makes you more than a mere machine. It seems as though every decade or so, there's another panic that the bots will take our jobs. And no wonder we are at the point now where they can mimic our language, impersonate our consciousness, even tell us which opinions are acceptable and which ones are wrong. And more and more, these organic bodies of ours seem antiquated, dangerous even. We lock them up in their houses because We see them as germ-ridden threats. We cut bits off them. We treat them with hormones as if we're doing nothing more than just changing the housing of our computer. And I wonder how deeply that materialistic idea has sunk into us, that we are essentially nothing more than biological robots. You put the right fuel in, liquid, food, pills, And round and round, those blind, organic processes grind, and so the right results pop out. That's essentially, isn't it, how the secular mind views human beings, a complex biological robot that just needs the right fuel. And if the traditional fuels grow 
inconvenient or bad for the planet, while we can equally fuel ourselves on vegan mush or on insect protein or whatever else the elites tell us we need to be using. The purpose is just to let these machines grind through their day and then grind through their week, repeat, 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 until they've ground through their working life and then through their retirement and then your organic material is broken down and recycled to build other biological robots. It feels instinctively wrong, doesn't it? But why is it wrong? That is essentially now what we're all brought up to believe. And it doesn't take chat GPT to provoke that existential crisis because already we treat ourselves as nothing more than that, just biological machines. But along comes Jesus Christ, a human being with an entirely different vision of humanity. The people sent to arrest him come back flawed and empty-handed because no one ever spoke like this man. It's as if he looks at humanity from the inside, from above, as the one who made us, and he knows what we're truly meant to be. And in Jesus' vision for humanity, we are so much more than mere biological robots. We are made to love and to be loved. We're made with a spiritual faculty, with a soul. And that soul was built to need and to know its maker. Just as viscerally as these bodies were built to need and to know water, Starve the human soul of Jesus Christ, and it will shrivel up faster than a body starved of water, because we were made to love him and be loved by him. In 10 years' time, ChatGBT may have every one of our jobs. It might even stand up in the pulpit and keep your attention far better than I could, but it will never have that. And so today, Jesus stands up once again in front of his own, his Jewish brothers in Jerusalem. And last time we saw a pattern play out that's repeated today. Jesus teaches. That causes huge confusion and division, all centered on where or who Jesus is from, how he can make these claims. And it culminates in rejection and an attempt to arrest him. And in that context of heartbreaking rejection, Jesus keeps on reaching out to make what today must be the kindest offer ever made, followed by surely the saddest snobbery ever shown, because these ones he patiently, kindly reaches out to in love dismiss him without even taking a look as if they would rather just wither up inside like an organic machine. First then, before the tragedy, let's rejoice in the offer, the kindest offer ever made. As in verses 37 to 39, heaven reaches out to shriveled souls. And what makes it so deeply kind is that context, because just before this passage, we saw who these people are, that Jesus makes his offer too. And in a moment, we'll see what shriveled souls look like even more clearly. These 
are the people who've been rejecting him, ridiculing him, dismissing him. And yet here he stands, patiently, kindly, yet again, holding himself out to them. Anyone who thirsts, whoever will believe in me. How wonderful is Jesus? The invitation he makes is for all of us, isn't it? Anyone, so long as we realize there is a thirst in our soul. Now, what exactly does that mean? It would be easy, wouldn't it, to speculate, to put our own cultural spin on what that thirst might mean. But thankfully, we don't need to guess because Jesus is using language that for them would have been very transparent. Remember, this is all happening at the busiest time of year, the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. Thousands of families are all camping out in their little booths, celebrating the day when God sustained and provided for his people in the wilderness. They were rescued from Egypt and marched out into the desert. And in a matter of days, one question became very acute. Can we trust this God to provide for us? Well, by Exodus chapter 17, the water had run out and the panic had set in. And just like the crowds have been doing here in John 7, the people back then begin to grumble. In fact, they're getting ready to kill Moses, the one God sent to rescue them. But instead of striking them down, God does something utterly extraordinary. He stands before Moses on a rock, and Moses has the rod in his hands, the same rod that we're reminded that he used to strike judgment on the Egyptians. And so we're waiting for judgment to fall, but God says, strike the rock, strike the place where I am standing. And the moment Moses does it, the floodgates open, and all the water they need comes rushing out. And all through their time in the wilderness, God gives his sinful people food, and he gives them drink, and he gives them light to follow. And it's that which the crowds are all here to celebrate. So what then do people hear when Jesus stands up and he cries out to this grumbling crowd, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. He's telling them that everything they are looking for in this feast, they can find in him. Tabernacles looked back to those years of provision in the wilderness where water flowed from a rock, and it looked forward to a river of living water that would flow even wider still. For seven days through this feast, a priest would draw water out of the pool at Siloam and then while the crowds all watched and chanted their psalms, they would process towards the temple where he would pour that water out over the altar. And it was like reenacting a promise from the prophets that one day rivers of living water would flow again from the temple in the Messiah's kingdom to all the world. Remember that beautiful picture we read a few chapters back from Ezekiel 47? a picture of a river of living water flowing out from the temple and everything it touches bursts back into life. So what kind of thirst then is Jesus 
talking about? What is the one condition in his offer here? It's the thirst human beings have when we know deep down that we can't sustain our own lives. There is something wrong, something missing inside us behind all of the grumbling and the discontent and the distrust. Something that makes our souls slowly die. Our life is leaking away from us and there is nothing we can do to stem the bleed. In fact, the more stuff we try to fuel our hearts with to get through the grind, the more empty they feel. The Israelites, remember, they wanted to run back to Egypt where the shops were full of Evian and Perrier, all sorts of human things to solve the problem. But what they needed to do was come to the gods who could give far more and keep trusting him. And now, right as the crowd celebrates that moment, Jesus stands up and he says, what you are looking for, I am here to give. Come to me. Do you know that you are more than machines? You were made to need and love your maker. It's me who you're thirsty for. And that's the thing about this offer that is so incredibly beautiful. Do you see what Jesus holds out to them? It's not a pill or a program or some special prayer to say. It's him. If you found that the thing you search for most in this world, this life, is intimacy, friendship, that's not because you're broken or because you're looking for the wrong thing. It's because you were made to thirst for this right thing. Rico Tice puts this beautifully. Deliverance from the rut is not something we achieve by taking Jesus' advice. It's something we receive by taking Jesus' hand. Come to me. Drink. And to drink, verse 38, simply means to trust that Jesus is enough. Whoever believes in me, as the whole Bible teaches in so many different pictures, so many different ways, out of that person's heart will flow rivers of living water, a life giving stream that never runs dry. Now, the Israelites, of course, they still had a wilderness to face, didn't they? It's not a promise here that if we just trust Jesus, we'll immediately have our hearts content and all the problems will melt away. It's deeper than that. It's a promise that Jesus will put the resources inside you to sustain your heart through the desert you will know whatever happens that your deepest need has been met, your deepest thirst forever quenched, and those resources will never run dry because they flow from one person, the great healing, restoring, forgiving river of God is Jesus himself, the source so many stories have that quest, don't they, for a mythical healing source of life. In the Narnia stories, it's the apple from Aslan's garden, the apple that the wardrobe later grows from. Some of you have read those beautiful wing feather books to your kids. There it's the water from the first well that puts everything right. Or there are all those medieval quests for a holy grail, 
one cup that fixes everything inside us, puts the world to rights. And Jesus says, you don't need to quest and to search. I am the source of all life, the life of heaven, and I'm reaching out to you. You only have to drink. And what an extraordinary thing this is. That living water will not only fill you up and quench your thirsting, but it will flow out of your hearts, spilling heaven's life and joy and healing to all the people around you so that you're not like some artificial garden in a desert, desperately hoping that the sprinkler keeps on flowing, the tap isn't turned off. No, you yourself overflow. Others in this arid wilderness, they experience that water which nothing else they've drunk could ever do for them. Look at so many of the people sitting around us today. We have people in church who are going through things which are desperately hard, don't we? And yet somehow they have found the resources to cope and to hope and even to rejoice. And we notice it, don't we? We want it. Faith in Jesus brings the source of life itself, the one your soul was made for, right inside you. Now, how will that work? How will Jesus give himself to anyone who comes to him hungry? Well, John the theologian jumps in at verse 39 to give us an explanation. Jesus said all this, he says, about the Spirit who those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given, for Jesus was not yet glorified. And to be glorified is one of John's favorite ways to talk about what will happen at the end of this book when Jesus is lifted up on the cross in all his glory and then returns to his Father. How will Jesus provide for shriveled souls? He will be struck like that rock he stood on all those centuries before when he pictured this for Israel. That rod of curse and judgment will fall on him. And when that happens, the floodgates will open so that this source of heaven's life and joy can live inside us. That's why this inexhaustible stream seems to come from us. It's not because we can somehow generate all this life and joy within ourselves. It's because the one who is life and joy, the source, is living inside us. It seems like a strange thing, doesn't it, to say that until the cross, the Spirit hadn't been given, because we've seen the Spirit's ministry through the Old Testament. We've seen the Spirit's ministry in this book. But something changes when Jesus is glorified. That's clear. Somehow we understand what it means to know God's presence with us in a far more powerful way. Sometimes we think of the Spirit as some anonymous force, a strange third party who comes to special Christians to make them more special still. But that is not at all what Jesus is promising here, is it? What has Jesus promised? He's promised to give us himself. Come to me, drink from me. So how does Jesus give us his very self? Well, he dies for us 
and then lives in us by his Spirit. The Spirit is not some anonymous extra. The Spirit is Jesus himself crucified and indwelling us. The very one who stood in our place out of love, who we've seen and known. If you know Jesus, you know the Spirit. One looks just like the other. If you've believed in Jesus, verse 39, you've received the Spirit, all of you. There's nothing more that God is holding back from you. Jesus is where the water is. It's him we need to keep drinking from, feeding on, keep listening to. We've seen already in this book that God the Son flows eternally from the Father. He reaches out to us with the Father's love, speaking the Father's words, showing the Father. And now, more and more, Jesus is going to introduce us to God, the Spirit, who is given to us from the Son, just as the Son is sent to us from the Father. It is through his own Spirit living in us that Jesus gives us himself, a husband, a provider, a friend, someone closer than anyone else we could ever know, and overflowing with life and patience and love, even when we are empty and thirsty and sinful and sad. Sometimes we want a kind of checklist, don't we, at the end of a sermon, lists of things to do and things to think differently about. Jesus is saying today, friend, you don't need a list of applications. What you need is to drink. Just be with me, believe in me, trust me, rejoice in this incredible kindness. You have already? That's wonderful. Keep drinking, because there will be times your soul needs a lot of water, but I will always be there, he says. Is that not the kindest offer ever made, given to the very people dismissing him like this? Which brings us much more briefly to verses 40 to 52. Heaven reaches out in love to the thirsty, and yet, almost inexplicably, the response of shriveled souls time and again is to dismiss the glory of heaven. It is the saddest snobbery ever shown. What would make a dying human being turn down a life-giving stream of water? Well, actually, it happens all the time, doesn't it? Some of you will have been with elderly relatives who are literally dying of dehydration as their body shuts down. And yet I remember two grandparents who, in the weeks before they died, just lost all interest in drinking water. Whiskey, that they would drink, put a glass of water in front of them, and they just wave it away irritably. And that is exactly what we see people doing here with Jesus Christ. There are people who recognize exactly what he's saying. This really is the prophet, the new Moses. Well, yes, he's just promised water like Moses gave to parched souls. This is the Christ. Well, yes, he's just claimed to be the one whose kingdom floods the world with life flowing from 
an altar in Jerusalem, a cross. And yet at the end, he's just waved away dismissively. And the reason is exactly the same as it was the last time around. People do not like the look of where he's from. This time, though, the sheer dismissiveness reaches a level where John wants his readers stuck somewhere between crying and laughing. Can you imagine how troubled some of John's early readers must have been? You're a Greek-speaking Jewish God-searcher drawn to Jesus, but none of the Jewish people that you love and respect and have learned from believe that he could possibly be the Christ. Why is that? And now John wants you to find out in a way that has you tearing your hair out because actually their dismissiveness was based on sheer complacent ignorance. They rejected Jesus because he's from a place like Galilee, dusty backwards Galilee up in the wilderness when everyone knows the Messiah is meant to come from David's city. But do you notice how John, the writer, doesn't even have to correct that mistake because his readers are screaming at the page right now, aren't we? There are three other gospels written by the time John tells this story. And we've already seen how most of his readers must have read one. They're familiar with the Jesus story. Maybe they've already had to start sitting through those endless school nativities with the donkey in the inn and the weird little kid dressed as an alien. Everyone reading this knows how the Jesus story goes. And if there's anything they're certain of by now, it's that royal Bethlehem is exactly where he was born. But the religious elite that day in Jerusalem just see a man with a thick rural accent who didn't go to the right rabbinic school, doesn't wear the right tie, he doesn't display his pronouns or the current write-on signals that say, listen to me, I'm the right sort of person. He won't even perform his miracles for the crowds the way his brothers want. He's a nobody. And so they write him off based on what they think they know about him. I wonder if you can hear John whispering to his readers, don't be discouraged when you see that happening to you. Nothing has changed. It was always like this. And the tragedy is that if only they would look closer, they'd have heard from Jesus where he's really from. Because Jesus has been saying it, hasn't he, right from the start of the chapter. And John's been showing us right from the start of the book. This is God from God, sent in eternity from the Father's heart, and sent in time to bring the life and love of heaven to shriveled human souls. That is the origin story that John cares about. And it's astonishing, isn't it? Even the temple guards, the ones sent to arrest him, feel in their guts that it's true as they hear him speak. More irony. They know that this is not just some bloke from Galilee. They know immediately that to lay a finger on this man would be sacrilege. Here is a man who speaks about God as if he was just showing us his own heart. But they report back to the Pharisees, and they're appalled, aren't they? Not because of anything Jesus has said, simply because the wrong kind of people are flocking to him. The thirsty, 
the needy, the deplorables, deplorable people, and not people like them. It's just extraordinary snobbishness, isn't it? Have any of the authorities believed in him? It's we and what we think is best for you that matters. Don't follow that mob of deplorables. Verse 49, these Christians with their backward views, listen to the experts, the right kind of people. Nothing has changed. And then it gets even more wonderful because it turns out that even one of those elites, one of the Pharisees, actually has started to have doubts. We met Nicodemus back in chapter 3, sneaking out to talk to Jesus under cover of darkness, just in case, like all the scared crowds here in chapter 7, he's seen hanging out with the deplorables. But isn't what he says delicious? Actually, guys, I don't think it's the crowd who are breaking the law. I think it's us. We're not judging this Jesus fairly. It's exactly what Jesus himself said in verse 19. You lot are rejecting not just the law, but the lawgiver. You do not know what you think you know. Judge me with righteous judgment. But instead, they look at a man they think they have the measure of, and they sneer, and all too easily they write him off without engaging. Don't be discouraged. Nothing has changed. I wonder if you can see now what breathtaking wisdom there is in the grace of God. Jesus has stood up offering everything to these very people, turning their nose up at him. It was an offer to anyone, but only to the anyone's who thirst. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, and here is the God who tabernacles with us. But what better place could he do that for the thirsty and the lost than right out in the middle of nowhere, camping with them up in Galilee, where people like this, the proud and the dismissive, would never think to look. Isn't that always how grace works? One preacher summed this up in a way that really helped me. He said, Jesus' offer is for anybody, but we have to sign up with a nobody. That's grace. God has hidden his glory in Galilee, where only those of us who know we are thirsty would be willing to stoop and to look. And soon, John says, God will hide that glory deeper still. Jesus will be glorified, not in Galilee, but at Golgotha. There could be nothing easier in all the world to dismiss than that. A naked, weak dying man, nailed to a cross. And yet Jesus says, it is right there that the love of heaven reaches out to us and the floodgates open. Two verses then to bury into our hearts this week. Does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? We will see that mistake made so many times, maybe that judging is going on inside us right now. Assuming that we know all that Jesus can offer and turning our nose up at living water. 
the saddest snobbery we ever show. And yet to just those people, those words of incredible patience and love from Jesus are always there. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, what wonderful kindness that you would offer yourself to dismissive and thirsty people like us, dwelling with us, crucified for us, living in us. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we have doubted that you have anything to offer us, for the ways we've simply not engaged and turned our noses up at the Lord of heaven and his words. Have mercy on us, Lord, and all those we love doing exactly that right now. And this Easter week of all weeks, would we drink deeply from the fountain of living water, you through whom all our sin can be washed away forever, and our empty souls filled with the life of God. Amen.